Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 97, we are carrying on with the Bitcoin hardware wallet series. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the show. First, you need to look into Kraken. They're an incredible Bitcoin exchange. Over the years that I've been around, I've been really impressed with how they operate. In an industry where many exchanges come and go, Kraken have stayed with an incredible focus on security and always looking to act ethically in the space as well. They're one of the longest standing exchanges. They're consistently read the best. They offer some of the best liquidity in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees. Recently, Kraken has been making serious progress in the institutional space. It was the first digital asset exchange to have its market data displayed on the Bloomberg terminal. And recently, with their acquisition of Interchange, they are providing best-in-class accounting, reconciliation, and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers, and fund administrators. To learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next up is Unchained Capital. They're a Bitcoin financial services company offering a two of three keys multi-signature vault product. You can use Trezor or Ledger with this product and you still maintain control with your two hardware wallet keys, reducing that single point of failure risk. And that helps protect you against the proverbial $5 wrench attack if your keys are distributed. If you create an Unchained Vault, you also get three free months of access to Safe Dynamus's Bitcoin Standard Research Bulletin. Unchained also offer Bitcoin collateralized loans, allowing you to get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins, meaning you don't trigger a capital gains event. So while that loan is outstanding, your Bitcoin is stored in a dedicated multi-signature address under collaborative custody with Unchained. So to learn more and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. All right, for the interview today, my guest is Michael Flaxman. He is an entrepreneur and also a Bitcoin educator and developer. So, yes, the title is Every Bitcoin Hardware Wallet Sucks, so it's a little inflammatory. It's a longer episode as well, but it is jam-packed with value, and it will make you really stop and think about the myriad risks involved and ways in which you can lose your Bitcoins. Now, that content may be a little scary at first, but we should take it as a journey and a lesson. It's a lesson for individual hodlers and the steps that we can take to improve our security and it's also a lesson for bitcoin hardware wallet manufacturers in terms of steps that can be taken to improve their products so michael points out many many flaws in the ways people are approaching bitcoin hardware wallets and the security today but the aim is obviously for improvement and so sometimes when we're coming into this we simply don't know how much there is that we don't know and then as you learn more you understand just how much you don't know but that said, I'm sure you guys will get a lot of value out of this one, and I hope you really enjoy the interview. On to the show. Michael, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so Michael, I think you are one of these really like underrated or underfollowed guys, right? Like I think the a lot of the kind of hardcore Bitcoiners know you, but there's a lot of people who don't know you. So uh, do you want to just give a bit of an intro on yourself? Sure. Uh, I, I fly under the radar and that works just fine for me. So I'm not looking to change anything. But uh, for some background, I've built uh, three venture funded companies, uh, most known for my first company, Thumbtack.com, um, which was in the press last week for achieving a $1.7 billion valuation, uh, which is pretty neat. And my next company was a Y Combinator company that's uh, not, not nearly as successful, but still around. Uh, and then in 2013, I got the Bitcoin bug and I started a Bitcoin company um, that died very fast. And now that I've learned all that I know about Bitcoin is, uh, you know, 
uh, it's kind of embarrassing. You, you get excited about a new thing and you want to build something. Um, and at the time, we thought cold storage as a service was a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so now I'm going to talk to you all about why you should store your own Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but then, uh, yeah, so I started building Bitcoin apps in 2013. I was a very minor contributor to PyCoin. Um, in 2015, I wrote Block Cipher's Block Explorer, um, which isn't, I don't think it's really maintained. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I know people still do use it for s- some stuff. Um, and uh, I should pull the traffic numbers because I think I still have access to the Google Analytics. Last time I looked, it was like eight figures page views per month, which was just wild. Um, but it, it's not something that I'm, I'm involved in. I haven't been for many years. And in 2016, I wrote their command line wallet um, and uh, written a number of Bitcoin wallets over the years. Um, and the, the Block Cipher command line wallet is just for fun. It's not something you should use for real money, although it does support testnet. So I do recommend it as a testnet wallet. Um, and its claim to fame is it's the shortest number of lines of code of any Bitcoin wallet. Um, and at the time, it did some cool advanced features. So 2016, to have a wallet that did feed preference is kind of neat. Uh, now yeah, every that's definitely ahead that. of its time, right? Um, and so you can you know you really see like how does Bitcoin work? Now there's a lot more resources. You know you can take uh, Jimmy Song's programming blockchain class. You can take Justin Moen's uh, Biddle Bootcamp. There's a lot of resources um, to see how you can do something. But historically, Bitcoin has been like you can read Bitcoin Core, which is very very difficult to read and very very long. Or you're like drifting around on the internet. Um, so having resources where you can say like, see how to um, generate Bitcoin addresses and sign a transaction and that kind of thing is is pretty uh, cool. Fantastic. Uh, and I know you were also recently helping Jimmy on his programming Bitcoin course as well, like as a teaching assistant, and you provide like technical review and feedback as well. Yeah. So I've known Jimmy since um, before. He was a, I guess, crypto guru, to say if that's the right <laughs> word. Before he was famous. Um, we, we were both uh, minor contributors to Richard Kiss's PyCoin, a Python Bitcoin library in 2013. And um, uh, I met him in February 2014 at the Texas Bitcoin conference, um, which, is, which is kind of wild. And then we ended up working together at Paxos. And so um, I, I met him as he just writes really good code. Uh, he's a joy as a software engineer to work with. Uh, he's super, super talented. Um, almost feel bad that uh, he's not really writing code anymore. That's not totally true. He's teaching people and uh, he he does write code uh, for some other things. But uh, it's like he is so gifted at that. It's it's almost sad that neither he nor I are writing code full time anymore. Um, but uh, so, yeah, that's how I met Jimmy. And I, I read his very first blog post and, and pretty much uh, everyone since. Um, and I thought, it was it was kind of neat that now he like has I don't know a hundred thousand or probably much more Twitter followers and a YouTube channel and he travels the world teaching about Bitcoin. Um, so I, I helped him as a teaching assistant in a couple of classes, um, but I it's never been my venture. I I do it for free and I said uh, I think my my policies were business class flights and steak dinners and uh, I'll <laughs> happily go meet Bitcoiners in other cities, which is pretty fun. Um, and I was a technical. Um, reviewer on his uh, his O'Reilly book as well. Excellent. So let's get into our topic for today, which is around hardware wallets and why a lot of them are not secure, but there are certain mitigations, as I'm sure we'll get into. But let's just talk a bit about some of the difficulties involved. Why is it so difficult to secure your Bitcoins? 
Yeah, yeah. And before we get into this uh, whole episode bashing hardware wallets, uh, which I enthusiastically stand behind, for most people, they are the best choice. So <laughs> if, if you're owning Bitcoin, I strongly advocate holding your own keys. And unless you're an expert, you should use a hardware wallet. Um, and if you are an expert, you should build your own hardware wallet um, with, with open source uh, software uh, that's free and, and equipment that you source yourself. Uh, but that's way outside the scope of this. So for most people, hardware wallets still are the best choice. Um, as far as usability and security, and they're reasonably priced. You know, we're talking around 100 US dollars, um, but they are very uh, hard still. So um, I don't want to scare people into something less secure, but you should be eyes wide open that there are no bailouts in Bitcoin. There's no undo button. If you mess up, you can lose money. Um, and that really, really sucks. And a lot of Bitcoiners who, um, you know, have been in the space for a long time and know what they're doing have a story about how, oh, years ago, you know, I lost and the numbers could be 0.1 Bitcoin, but, uh, you know, a number of people have come to me with 100 Bitcoin losses and I'm just like, ouch, ouch, that sucks. So use testnet, do everything on testnet first, try it multiple times, wipe your device, recover. Um, testnet is a fantastic resource because it's the same thing. It's just not worth anything. So you get to practice. Um, so Use a hardware wallet and use testnet um, first. But uh, with that said, your question was, uh, why is it so hard to store Bitcoin even on a hardware wallet? And so getting back to that, um, you, you really have to think about what are the odds that you're going to mess this up. And they're very low. Um, you know, for just using an ordinary hardware wallet without any special skills, but being savvy and cautious and sending a transaction, I would guess that there's somewhere between a 0.01 and a 0.1% chance you're going to lose money. Uh, and that, those are pretty low numbers. You know, if I told you like you were going to hit the Facebook like button and it was only going to fail 0.01% or 0.1% of the time, you wouldn't think like, well, which browser am I using? And have I validated this software? And, uh, you know, do I click <laughs> it this way? How long do I hold it down for? You would just hit the button because whatever, that's totally fine. But if your Facebook like didn't stick, um, you also wouldn't care. If you were transporting a very significant amount of money to you, perhaps you're, you know, uh, leaving your homeland and this is your life savings. Uh, finding out that, oops, 0.01% of the time you lost all your money, uh, that's really, really not okay. And so it brings us to this weird place where, if you told me that uh, to pay an extra 0.01% transaction fee, I would guarantee that nothing bad would happen. You know, this is super hypothetical. There is no way to really guarantee this. But if you told me that, I would probably say, yeah, I'll pay that fee all day long. If I could get that guarantee and I'm just going to lose 0.01%, I'd pay it. Um, but unfortunately, if you're the 0.01% the of times that it happens, it 100% affects you. And so um, that's why it's so, so scary. If you've ever done a large wire for something like you know buying property, for example, you probably like called the title office and said, hey, this is the wire information, right? Like, I'm getting this email from this person who I think is a title officer, but now I'm just calling the main line and like making sure this is a real company. <laughs> um, and, and there's moments like that, even though a wire is perhaps um, more reversible depending on, on your situation. Um, with, with Bitcoin, um, you have that same fear and it's designed for storing large amounts of value. So this should be really magnifying. And everyone has this like moment of terror when they go into their cold storage to sign a transaction. Um, and if they don't, they're, they're probably being reckless. They, they probably should. Um, and lots of people didn't claim 
uh, their Bcash or other altcoin airdrops because it's just like, well, for 10%, I'm not going to touch it um, or whatever the number was. I mean, at some point it got much, much higher. At some point now it's much lower. Um, but uh, some people, it, it still wasn't worth it to them. And, and that is really, really hard. Um, so in terms of the things that you have to get right, because that was really your question, um, it's, is this code doing what I think it's doing? And am I running the code that I think I'm running? <laughs> and both of those are incredibly hard things to verify. Um, so, you know, there are just so many famous examples of uh, hacks and bugs uh, that it's kind of hard to, to point to all of them. And there's lots of other talks that'll give examples of those. Uh, the idea is just that you should be cautious and paranoid because it is really hard. So like, you know, one of my favorite examples is there was a bug in 2013 in um, Android's implementation of Secure Random in Java. And Secure Random, as the name suggests, is a function that securely gets you um, some random bits of data. And in a Bitcoin signature, you need a random component um, it's part of the the proof in the in the ECDSA signature, and if that bit is random, then um, it it doesn't matter. It's it's like um, uh, it's not something that you ever would look at again. Um, you can think of it as like a nonce, a number used only once, um, and it just is used to prove your ownership of that private key. But if that secure random data is actually uh, not random, then somebody could intuit your private key. Uh, instantly. This is not a difficult attack to do by any measure. There's plenty of open source code that will do it um, from your signature. So as soon as they see a signature broadcast, they know your private key. And that is terrifying. And a lot of people lost lost money in, in wallets um, that were Android wallets in 2013. And that's the type of thing that nobody could possibly have been aware of. Um, it's It's the Java library for randomness. It's called Secure Random. Developers who used it were doing the right thing. Um, and then surprise, you lost your money. Um, and so those are the, the types of examples. Now they've since fixed that. That was 2013. Um, but even BitGo, uh, which is a very reputable company, I'm not meaning to uh, say anything negative about them specifically, uh, they had a, a recovery script so that you could access your funds if they went out of business, which is excellent. And it was open source. Uh, they employ really smart software engineers. They'd been around for uh, a long time. The code had been open source for a long time. And somebody ran the script and lost 85 Bitcoin. <laughs> and this yeah. was in April 2015. And to Bitcoin's credit, they, um, they just made that person whole. They reached into their own um, pocket and, um, and recovered that person's money. But, um, you know, ouch, if you just ran some code and one minute you're thinking, okay, I'm going to send this money. And the next, you're like, where did 85 Bitcoin go? <laughs> that hurts. And you should never have a moment like that. You know, when planes take off and land, we don't say like, well, there's only a 0.1% chance it's going to crash. You'll probably be fine. Um, we have all kinds of redundancies and checklists. Um, and it's a, it's a different thing. You know, it's not move fast and break things. Um, but it works really, really well. And Bitcoin one day will get there. Uh, we are getting better and better every year. They're kind of the examples where it was like an honest mistake. And then you've got the examples where it's malicious, right? Somebody is trying to compromise you in some way, make you run a different code that potentially is malware. Exactly. And we saw this in Electrum, for example, December 2018. Um, Electrum is a great piece of software. I recommend it. So I'm not, I'm not saying that um, it's bad. But uh, somebody figured out that there was a mechanism to send a message if you run an Electrum server, and we don't know who runs the Electrum servers, and big PSA, 
they're they're probably run by Chainalysis. Um, it would be the best guess. So you should assume you're just connecting to a government repository of address info when you connect to an Electrum server. Uh, if you use Electrum, it is highly recommendable to run your own Electrum server, which is a pain in the butt. Um, but uh, when when you collect to a server, it can connect to a server, it can send you any message it wants. And so it was clever and sent a message saying, "Hey, your Electrum's out of date. Uh, click here to update." And the thing that you were updating to was actually their version of Electrum that stole your money. Um, and this bug. Uh, to this day, persists in Electrum in a weird way, and that now Electrum servers uh, can't send you that message on a new version of Electrum. But also to enforce upgrading, Electrum servers won't connect to outdated versions of Electrum clients, and so um, you have to upgrade your Electrum client, or you're only going to connect to uh, malware servers. <laughs> right, and in that example, now this is again. I know some of my listeners, they're at different levels, right? We have some beginners and some sort of intermediate or advanced level. But in that example, theoretically, what people should be doing is when they download this new software, they should be GPG verify, right? They should be verifying the software release is signed by the private key of a known developer. So in this example, Thomas V, uh, theoretically, you should be checking that this upgrade signature matches that but in practice not many people do that exactly and this is where private key management gets really really hard because each thing that you say eh, it's probably fine i downloaded it from like the electrum website um and you want to be really sure like did you was it actually the electrum website or was it some imposter um did you have like an ssl certificate because if you didn't then perhaps there was a man in the middle serving you uh, a malicious copy of the electrum client and these are not um like nefarious, far-fetched attacks. There's a really strong incentive to do this. I mean, if you are a talented hacker um, and you want to do, uh, and you're not a white hat hacker who you know works for companies securing them, but you want to be a black hat hacker who steals, there is no better use than cryptocurrency. Because it used to be like you, if you broke into uh, people's computers, you could send like some spammy message to their friends saying, hey, uh, buy this Rolex or something. And nobody did because, I mean, you, you, it's like obviously spam and it's weird. Um, some percentage of people did. So they send billions of these messages. The overwhelming majority get caught in spam filters. And then of the remainder, some people, um, some very small percentage would buy these fake Rolexes with iTunes gift cards or whatever like the crazy scheme was. That's a really difficult way to monetize malware. Now, if you're a smart hacker, you want to get into people's Bitcoin software. And there are so many clever attacks. So I could, you know, potentially uh, serve somebody up um, a Bitcoin wallet that that is malware, and then they're completely under your control. Uh, but you might do something more subtle where you're able to trick them into thinking that this is their receiving address when it's actually the attacker's receiving address. So that's a very common attack. Um, but you might be able to mess with their source of randomness. So they're still running their software, but they're not getting the proper randomness. Um, so at every step of the way, like, yeah, you should do these things. You should absolutely verify signatures of software you're running. Um, but it it goes to show how really hard it is. You can only add, uh, like, um, you can only improve the probability that your system is secure. You're never going to be at 100%. And if you're doing a Bitcoin transaction, it's probably because it's something that you relied on to store value. And you would really like 100%. So um, the thing that we're going to talk about is uh, in a bit is multi-sig. 
And the, the benefit of multi-sig is that if you use two different hardware wallets or two different setups and you require two signatures, and your numbers could be whatever you want. You could require three of five signatures, four of five, two of three. But if you use more than one signature, then an attacker would have to exploit the vulnerabilities in more than one of those configurations simultaneously. And so you can take something that's probably good enough, that's you know going to work uh, 99.9% of the time, or maybe even 99.99% of the time, um, with something like, say, a Trezor. And then you can do the same with something like, say, a cold card. And then you get this additive benefit of multi-sig, where now a hacker has to attack both of those systems simultaneously. Um, that is not just twice as hard. That is orders of magnitude harder. And so um, that's the thing we're going to get to is, is the amazing power of, of multi-sig. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess let's sort of talk through a few of the other ways or common ways that a hacker might try to compromise you. So another example might be if they had some malware that made you copy paste the wrong address and paste you know, their own receiving address. That's probably another example. That one's really common. And so one thing about that is that you should always check the address in your most secure location, meaning your hardware wallet. So, so one of the simplest attacks is to uh, get you to copy paste the wrong address on, on your um, machine and then just hit send on the hardware wallet. But really on the hardware wallet screen is the one that you need to confirm and you want to call that person up or however you securely communicate with them and say, hey, I'm about to send you these funds. Uh, here's the address I'm seeing on the screen on my hardware wallet. Is this you? And a good attacker would be smart. They would make the beginning digits and the ending digits the same because us humans, we're, we're very weak and we follow heuristics. And so nobody wants to verify in the entirety of a Bitcoin address. <laughs> they say, well, the first, you know, five characters look the same. The last five characters look the same. Eh, I'm going to call it a match. Um, and on that, sorry, on that yeah. um, point, it, what, how difficult is it computationally to make, to? because I understand there was a little bit of in the past, people used, for example, vanity addresses, right? Like mm -hmm. Andreas famously has one Andreas or something like that. And yeah. it was more difficult to generate an address with specifically those characters you wanted. But then on this question of if you were to try and use this heuristic or shortcut, as you say, the first few digits and the last few digits, do you have a feel or can you tell us how much more difficult is that for a hacker to do? Yeah, so um, the way Bitcoin address generation works is... Um, Behind the scenes, there's this secret exponent. It's a really large number between roughly 1 and 2 to the 256, which is unfathomably large. I mean, we're talking about more atoms than there are in the universe. Um, and if anyone can guess that number, they steal your Bitcoin. Uh, but again, it, it's such a big number that they could guess uh, for the whole history of, of the universe, and they would get a fraction of the guessable space. Um, so it's a really, really large amount of en entropy. Um, so you, you, you start with this um, private key and you do a bunch of manipulations to it, um, including hashing it twice with SHA-256, once with RIPEMD-160. You encode it in uh, base 58, uh, or at least for uh, previous non-native um, SegWit addresses. Um, you, you add a checksum, you do all this stuff, and uh, then you output an address that looks completely random. So in it, if somebody's trying to do a vanity address, like the Andreas one, um, they're just trying lots and lots of combinations. And so it's not that dissimilar in your mind to think of as like proof of work, where you try a lot of combinations, and then you see which one uh, for a block hash 
has a bunch of leading zeros. If you look at a block hash, it always has a lot of leading zeros. That's because uh, that's actually a, a number representation of a really big number in hexadecimal. And so those leading zeros are proof that uh, that work was done that meets the difficulty threshold for Bitcoin. So it's a similar concept with a vanity address where you just try a bunch of stuff. You're not targeting a difficulty number. You're targeting like, can I get something that starts with this many digits or and or ends with this digits? Um, and so you can think of the difficulty as a function of the number of digits. Each extra digit you add gets exponentially harder. So that's why we have one Andreas, but we don't have one Andreas Antonopoulos. Yeah. Uh, that is, I don't want to say impossible, but, um, you know, because I would need to do the numbers for it. But just off the top of my head, I would say it's, it's probably impossible just, just to get that many digits. Um, typically, you see vanity um, addresses, I think, going up to like nine-ish characters. Um, and each extra character is very expensive. You could like try to set your threshold there, um, but really just try to read the whole address. You're a human that's inaccurate and you're going to miss some characters. So like if your attacker was clever and gave you an address where the first, you know, three of the first four digits were correct and three of the last four were correct, you'd probably be fooled. It's hard. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. But it was good. Thank you for the explanation on that because I think that is another common heuristic that people already are using. Yeah. Um, and you should always assume that your attacker is smarter than you and has more hardware than you because you're not their only target. They're, they're doing this for everyone. So, you know, they might have a GPU generating vanity addresses. Um, so you'd look at it and you'd say like, wow, these eight digits match that that can't possibly be a coincidence. But maybe that's just what they're really good at is making eight digits match because they have every financial incentive to do it. Yeah, that's uh, scary stuff. But um, <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, how about also the supply chain risk as well? That's another big factor that people talk about. The supply chain risk is absolutely terrifying because um, it's completely outside your control. And so you could you could do things to minimize it. You say, well, I'm only going to buy my hardware wallet direct from the company at like an event where they are there. So if I get my uh, you know, device from the company, from a person who works at the company, then that's probably better odds than, you know, absolutely do not buy it secondhand on eBay. Um, so that's one way uh, to minimize the supply chain risk, but you can't know about ups, um, upstream supply chain risk. So they're not making it at home in their basement. They're contracting out to a third party who's taking, industri- who's taking commercial uh, equipment off the shelf and so there's so much room upstream for there to be a vulnerability. And one of the things that's scary is, let's say that there were a vulnerability, which I'm not saying that there is, but you know, we should assume everything's compromised. Um, you would have a financial incentive as the attacker to wait. Let a bunch of funds be deposited onto hardware wallet A, B, or C, um, where you know the private key. And then once the number's gotten big enough, you know, say you're at uh, over $100 million, that's when you have your retirement attack. And you simultaneously drain all the funds and you disappear. And no one would ever be able to know that, you know, the chip maker would point to the, um, the software, the software would point to the firmware, like everyone would just be pointing fingers and nobody could know. Uh, the whole system would break down. So uh, it's a scary world out there. <laughs> I don't, the, the biggest thing is that I, I do like every tinfoil hat thing you can do. And I assume that what I do is not, is not good, is not, um, uh, 100% safe. Um, and it's multi-sig that I think really changes the whole nature of the equation. I guess let's start talking through then 
what does a good hardware wallet look like? And I think a good one, good place to start would be multi-signature support. Yes. So let's let's talk a little bit about how does multi-signature help? So uh, when a multi-sig originally came out, a lot of the use case was around securing the private key material and the operational bit within a company. So what that means is you could have a key at home, a key at work, and a key, you know, buried in a treasure map somewhere in your favorite place. And if you need two of those three keys, then somebody breaks into your home or your work um, or finds your buried treasure, they don't get your Bitcoin. Uh, That's one use case. And then the other bit is uh, maybe operationally, you're a company of uh, three people and you have two of three keys. And so it takes two of three people to authorize spending funds. Or you could do this across organizations with a service like BitCo and you'd say, okay, we need two of three keys, but one's going to be owned by uh, BitGo and one, or I'll use an even better example, Unchained Capital. Uh, I think they're a show sponsor, if, if I remember correctly. Uh, they are, um, yes. They're here in Austin, Texas. So uh, maybe Unchained has a key, you have a key, and another custodian has a key. Um, and in a two of three situation, two of three of those entities would have to be hacked. So um, that is true. And multisig can provide benefits for that. Uh, what I'm really excited about multi-sig for is that you get independent hardware and software stacks. So those signatures could come from two hardware wallets sitting on your desk. But if one's a Trezor and one's a cold card, uh, now an attacker has to attack the supply chains of both those companies. Uh, now an attacker has to uh, attack the software implementation on both of those companies. And since those devices are exist to distrust the host computer, they should be verifying everything themselves uh, that's really good for your security. Uh, and that's an important thing to think about with a hardware wallet. The reason we have hardware wallets is because we assume that our host machines are infected with malware. That's the, that's the reason we do it. If, if we thought our desktop computers were totally safe and secure, uh, we wouldn't need hardware wallets. And they provide hardware wallets provide that extra level of defense. I'm sorry, I keep drifting off of your questions, though. <laughs> no, no, that's no, no, fine. That, that's good. Um, and the other component, I think, as you were mentioning, is how you have to get everything right. If you're trying to do just one key, one hardware wallet, everything has to be right for you to have that same security. Can you touch on that point around just why it it sort of it can help? You know, for example, let's say you use a Trezor and a cold card, and let's say unbeknownst you know to the company that there was some kind of software hack in one of those teams or one of those pieces of software um, that underlies you know those hardware wallets how would you still be secured in a two of three scenario yeah so if you using and this is often called m of n which is um, a threshold so you you require m signatures of n total possible signatures and that's something that the user can configure. So you could decide you want two of three. That's probably the most pop, um, common one that we see in the wild. And uh, so you would say, okay, I have these three hardware wallets, and maybe it's a Trezor, a cold card, and a crypto steal. And I need two of the three um, to sign. And it's not that you specifically need the wallets to sign. You need the uh, pub keys that those wallets hold to sign. Um, but so you have these three devices and you want two of three of them to sign. If one of them is completely compromised in the worst possible way, it's not some uh, edge case vulnerability that ex- that uh, does one thing wrong in one case. Assume uh, it it sent your private keys home to their, their server 
and they can just do anything they want. <laughs> and maybe it even updated the device uh, remotely so that they can control it. Um, it's just fully owned piece of hardware sitting on your desk. The worst, worst possible scenario. But your threshold was you needed two of three signatures. It just doesn't do them any good. They have to hack a second device as well. And um, the odds of that first scenario are pretty unlikely. To, to do the second as well is really, really tricky. And they're not. it's unlikely you're the target. It's not like somebody has concocted this unbelievable scheme uh, to break your Bitcoin stash. They're trying to go after um, the, the, the crowd in general because the best attack is the one you can pull off remotely uh, without ever having to, to physically be there from another country. Um, if someone's you know, breaking into your house because they have one of your keys and they need the second key, um, that's, that's a much more dangerous situation for them. Uh, still possible. You, know, you should um, not tell people where you keep your Bitcoin and um, you know, maybe you should try to have some privacy and um, maybe you should have an alarm or, or guns or something. But um, that, uh, that's a different class of attack than someone saying, hey, I can introduce some malware into this and just steal tens of millions of dollars. That's really tempting to a, um, a hacker who, who doesn't have any uh, physical knowledge or skills or want to be on the ground. Or I mean, that's, a, that's an entirely different risk profile. Yeah. And the other component is if there is any software that is potentially common between the different hardware wallets, is that the case? Or in your, in your experience, is it mostly segregated? So and that's terrifying because there's a lot of copy paste of, of code. Uh, crypto is just really, really hard. So if you have a library that does something uh, in your language, you're likely to borrow from it heavily. And unfortunately, almost all the hardware wallets are written in, in Python or MicroPython. Um, so that is not ideal, um, but I think that's a more minor thing. Uh, again, we're talking like you can chase the perfect secure system that was written in, in three different languages. Um, and and that is, you know, every single time, every single receive address I've generated, I've verified in two different programming languages um, because I just don't want to have any doubt um, that, that, that I have the private key for that address. Um, but that's probably not very mainstream to do. Um, one day, I hope we have so many hardware wallets that you could just pick. Hey, I want one with like two different languages, and you can still have like five different choices of great products. But right now, that's that's not the world we live in. And just on the topic of that interaction between software and hardware, my understanding, and I'm sure you can uh, help help me understand this, is uh, it might be possible that the software is fine, but there's a problem with the hardware, and the hardware is not doing what you think it is. And so it's kind of like that idea of if you think of like you know the different stack if you will the hardware and the software and you're thinking you're safe at this upper level but actually you've been pwned at the hardware level yeah that's a scenario as well right that's one of the very very difficult things and and if they've written their code defensively every bit doesn't trust every other bit so perhaps you know for example um in the beginning we used to just trust dev random which is the source of randomness on a on a computer um, for our, our randomness. That's kind of like what secure random was supposed to be using. Um, and later we learned like, hey, you can do deterministic K values in your signatures that um, look random or outwardly appear to be random, but actually don't rely on the random number generator. So there, there are, for example, in a signature, you can uh, write your software to avoid the risk of a bad hardware random number generator. 
Um, now that's true in signatures. In generating private keys, you need a source of randomness. Now some hardware wallets will have cool features on this where you could input your own randomness because randomness is also additive. You can do um, this thing is called uh, XORing bytes, where you basically add randomness to a random number generator, and that's only additive. It can't hurt. So in my very short um, uh, BC wallet is a block cipher command line only wallet that, again, I don't recommend using, but it's good for learning purposes. Uh, it's not supported. It's from 2016. But in that, I ask you to bang on the keyboard because I say, I'll assume that the random number generator um, that, that your computer uses is compromised. So bang on the keyboard and feed me extra entropy. And I'll combine that randomness with my hardware's randomness. And hopefully, uh, even if I have bad hardware, my software can overcome it. So in theory, there's clever tricks you can do. Um, another common one, uh, I believe Cold Card supports this, you can roll dice. The dice. Um, yep. And you can even do that deterministically, although you're going to have to roll a lot of dice. So that's very tiring <laughs> or pain in the butt. But you know, I, you're going to receive a lot of Bitcoin. Like Maybe you should buy a couple dollars worth of dice and sit there and roll them. Um, and that's another clever, clever thing you can do. Um, so there are all these ways that that your hardware and software interact, and even your hardware and your hardware, because you might have in a hardware wallet a microcontroller unit, an MCU, and a secure element. And if your MCU can tell your secure element what to do, then your secure element is not really adding any security because your unsecure microcontroller unit can control it. So these things, it's like a, it's like a, a wormhole that you go down that is so, so hard. And again, the solution is two signatures from two different devices. And to point out uh, this additive nature, um, if I were holding a really large amount of Bitcoin and I didn't want to deal with the complexity of multi-sig, I don't want to have like an extra thing that I got to back up and remember and tell my family where it is if something happens to me. Um, but I just want to make sure my software works. I would create, I would do two of two. And for that second signature, I would use a key that's not very secure. I'd leave it on my desk with a big flag that says, two of two key here. It would be a mnemonic without a password. Maybe it'd be an even shorter mnemonic than the full length or, or not. You should probably just use the, the full 24 word length. Um, I'd have lots of copies of it, you know, a copy at home and a copy at work and a copy with my family and a copy in a safe deposit box, because that's only one of the keys in a two of two. And I would use that for my second signature in addition to my first signature. So even though we'd say, hey, that was really insecure, it's just sitting on your desk in plain text, um, and you're not guarding it very well, it's more secure to add a second signature with two of two than it is to just have one really secure signature with one of one. So if you can take your one of one setup, and you're guarding that one with your life, because it is your Bitcoin, um, and add a second one that's insecure, you've improved your setup, which is a very weird counterintuitive thing to think, oh, I'm going to behave like really insecurely and I'm going to add security. Um, I'm not saying you should behave insecurely, but if you were on the fence about multisig, add insecure multisig and you will be better off. Because again, your attacker now has to compromise two independent systems simultaneously. Right. Uh, another topic is air gapping. So this is another one where, okay, there are different ways to achieve this. I know the cold card offers this as an option with a micro SD card where essentially you can use that to ferry unsigned or signed transactions between your internet connected computer and your hardware device. Uh, can you talk a little bit to this idea of air gapping? Why is it important? How does it help? 
Yeah. So when you're connected to the internet, we call this a hot machine. And when you're disconnected from the internet, we call this a cold machine. And your, your laptop may live somewhere in the middle because it's probably connected to the internet most of the time, but you can unplug it very easily and you, you do on flights and stuff. Um, and a hot machine is really dangerous because it might receive updates automatically in the software. So perhaps an attacker um, is uh, compromises one of the distribution systems for that service. So, you know, imagine an, a rogue employee at a hardware wallet or a software wallet uh, compromises their GitHub account or however they're releasing their software and releases um, compromised software, which would be something they'd be very able to do. And then they'd be able to say, oh my God, a third party did it. I had nothing to do with that. That, that wasn't me. Um, if they were able to do that and your computer is connected to the internet and it just automatically downloads and installs these updates, well, you've basically you know, been pwned without even doing anything. So the air gap is the absolute first line and most important defense. You have to use a good air gap because if your computer is one that's, say, eternally quarantined, never connected to the internet, lives in your house, and you installed the software once, that one time you installed it, you verified it in the best ways that you know how, PGP signature, for example, downloading it on a clean machine first, um, then it doesn't matter what happens to um, that supply chain for their software in the future because yours is, connect is disconnected from the internet. So that air gap is really good. And there's a reason why like nuclear reactors run an air gap. Um, they don't want somebody clicking on an attachment in some email, installing a virus, and uh, messing with the nuclear reactor. That seems pretty good. We, we all like that system. But even that air gap is vulnerable. So the, the most famous attack is the 2010 Stuxnet from the US government to jump Iranian, the Iranian nuclear reactor. And this is just like straight out of a James Bond spy movie. Um, they put basically some malware in USB drives, millions of them, um, that when it connected to most computers, didn't do anything. So people didn't notice it. But when it connected to the exact computers that were known to be running in that system, um, so both the hardware and the software, then it distributed its malware. And it's considered to have set back the Iranian nuclear program substantially. <laughs> it worked. We wow. jumped their air gap with USB drives. Um, but if that technology is out there and the government can do it to people, individuals could, could come up with USB drives that could jump air gaps too. So um, cold cards SD card air gap is unfortunately currently the best off-the-shelf air gap product we have. Um, I... Uh, I've played around with some prototypes of some new hardware wallets that are coming on the market that use QR code air gaps. Um, and I can't wait for these companies to launch because they're so, so awesome. Right now, if you want a proper air gap with a QR code, you pretty much have to use Electrum or build your own. And um, that's like a weird, not ideal thing. You know, you're picking up a laptop upside down and trying to get it to read a QR code off another laptop. Um, and it's just clearly not, you know, the, the best user interface, but a QR code would be very hard to remotely pass code with an exploit. Um, whereas an SD card would be possible, though very unlikely. And then the worst would be just plugging a uh, it, the hardware wallet into your hot machine, um, which again, we assume to be malware infected. That's the reason we use the hardware wallet. Um, we're not using it for its great screen or keyboard or a slow processor. We use the hardware wallet because it's air-gapped. And then we plug it directly into our malware-infected machine. <laughs> so the current setup is really, really not ideal. Um, QR codes are great. 
um, and uh, you you can use an SD card. It's it scares me. If it was your only signature, I would be very uncomfortable with that. Um, but if you have a multisig, then for one of them, perhaps I could see the value in that. Also, um, one thing to keep in mind when you're doing this air gap is that you can treat the host machine as completely malware infected, um, and that's okay because the air gap is designed to be quarantined and safe. So if you were passing data from a malware infected machine to an air gap hardware wallet via a QR code, there's not really a danger there. There's not a thing that it can do to your offline machine. Now, you shouldn't have a malware infected machine, but we probably all do. Um, so if you can focus your security on your air gapped private key management solution, whatever that is, your hardware wallet or your build your own setup, you can focus all your security there. And then the rest of it, you can be pretty casual about. And that's the good um, usability security trade-off. You want to really focus on your secure part and really ignore uh, or not focus so much on your hot machine because it's probably compromised anyway. Um, obviously, you want to do everything if you can, but the, the ultimate would be just guard your keys with your life. Don't worry about your, you know, your laptop and whether you click the link in an email, which you shouldn't do that. But if you did, um, your keys would be offline. Right. Yeah. And uh, look, let, while we're on this topic, we've also got to obviously touch on PSBT, partially signed Bitcoin transactions. So, Michael, can you tell us why is that relevant here and why, you know, what does PSBT help us with? Yeah. So PSBT is also known as BIP 174. And it's just a standard way to pass around unsigned Bitcoin transactions. So on its face, it's not that exciting. It's just um, like an encoding and a standard format for how we pass around, okay, this is a two of three. Um, perhaps here is the derivation path for you to find this address. Hardware wallets don't store um, any real data on them. Typically, they're stateless. So you might have a, a, a seed, and from that, all your private keys are derived. But finding your private key is actually difficult because if you have like that, that one seed can generate billions of keys. So if I want to find the key to transact with this UTXO, I don't want to try every single combination. I want to know where in the tree do I traverse to find that key. And so uh, one of the, the nice things of many in, in uh, PSBT or BIP 174 is, the, is a standard instruction set saying, hey, using your extended public key, here's the derivation path to find your private key. Now you have a seed that can derive private keys. So you can follow that path and you can derive the private key very, very quickly. You know, we're talking on the order of like 50, 100 milliseconds. So um, your hardware wallet, which again, or sorry, your uh, host machine, which again could be completely malware infected, gives these instructions to your hardware wallet that are just for it to verify, yep, I've got an address there. Yep, this is what the transaction looks like. Yeah, this format makes sense. This is what the fee is. Uh, this change address belongs to me. I can calculate the sum of the inputs and the outputs and the change and figure out how much am I spending. And I can just show that to the user really easily. Because we think of Bitcoin transactions as um, I'm sending you know, one Bitcoin from me to you. But in reality, I might have 10 inputs and, and two outputs. And to a human trying to figure out, okay, what's the sum of the outputs minus the sum of the inputs? And what are the ones I control versus the ones that I don't? You're very quickly not able to keep that in your head. Um, so if I can have a standard format for relaying this to my hardware wallet, that my hardware wallet can understand and verify trustlessly, 
then my hardware wallet can just display to me, hey, here's a transaction to sign one Bitcoin spending to address A. And all I got to do is make sure A really is yours. And that's very easy and just click yes. Um, and maybe it's a two of two or a two of three or two of five or whatever my threshold is. And it can say that too. You know, hey, this is a, a two of five and you're one of them. Um, I will say there is one negative here, slight asterisks that I assume will be improved in, in future. Um, but there is a new attack, which is, let's say I'm, I'm two of two. And I pull up my hardware wallet and it says, uh, okay, you're one of the two keys required. How do I know what the other one of the two is? And one of the risks is that the other one is actually my attacker. And so I send funds to a two of two address uh, and I have one of the keys and so does my attacker. Uh, we don't know that this has ever happened in the wild. And when the attacker sees that on the blockchain, they say, aha, well, I have your money hostage. Um, if you would like it back, you know, I'm very generous. I'll split it with you. Um, or some other prisoner's dilemma game theory amount that they're going to share with you in order to refund it. And so that would be a scary thing. Now, some wallets are better about this. Trezor will show you, hey, you're one of two, and I have that one. Ledger just says, good luck. Trust your malware-infected machine. Uh, you're probably <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of insane. I, I really hope they fix that. Um, that. That seems like a very dumb uh, stance they're taking. Um, and so, so there is that new thing. Um, when you have multisig, that's the one new negative you introduce. Um, but the UI will get there on that, and um, you, you can verify that that's really yours. And um, so I, I think that will get better in the future. Right. And part of that also is if you're trying to, as you said, you want to use the address that it shows you on the hardware device, not the one that it's on your computer, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the difficulties right now is that some of the, or at least the earlier hardware wallets, to have a very small screen they don't necessarily have the sp space to show you all those details um so hopefully with the newer versions so with newer wallets and newer products so for example i know uh, crypto advance stepan snijirov one of my previous guests was talking about this idea of having a bigger screen that can show you all the details and show you exactly okay these inputs these outputs two of two whatever all those details so that the user knows they can uh, see on the hardware device, the one that's doing the signing, what is what am I signing here? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm excited for some of the products. I've seen some of their prototypes and um, Stepan is very smart. Uh, that was an enjoyable episode you did with him. He has some great talks on some of the vulnerabilities in hardware wallets that I recommend that I've tweeted before. We could put them in the show notes. Um, sure. But yeah, uh, yeah the, this big enough screen, you want a screen big enough to verify. Um, the reality is you don't need a massive screen just for transaction verifying because it's enough to say one Bitcoin to address X, fee is Y. And if you supply enough information, and PSBT is a great format to supply information to your hardware wallet, then it can verify everything else. Um, so, so that's pretty good. Um, it, it, the amount of what you can verify is tricky. So for example, if you're signing a SegWit transaction then you sign the input values. So you can verify the inputs and all the outputs are in the transaction. And so you can verify the fee. If you're signing a pre-segwit transaction, uh, the only way to verify the input values is to look them up in the blockchain. And so some wallets will uh, supply a proof saying, here's what you're signing. And some of them will say, yeah, it's, it's actually hard because it's just a lot of data. Like imagine you're signing 
um, an input that was the output of a Coinbase transaction. That transaction was paying out to mining pools. So it, it had a thousand recipients. We have to show you this transaction of a thousand recipients to show you what your output, your previous output was that you're assigning. It just becomes kind of impractical. And, and the answer is like, you should use a SegWit wallet um, if you're going to use a hardware wallet because that's better. Because um, SegWit in BIP 143 uh, changes the serialization format so that you sign um, the input that you sign includes both um, what you're signing and a redundant copy of its value. So the hardware wallet can check and say, hey, how, how many Bitcoin is in this input that I'm signing? Um, and the network would reject it otherwise. So that's like a clever... There's all these clever things in SegWit that most people don't know about because they just think it was like... A, um, well, it's got really weird marketing. They, they think it was whatever yeah. Roger Ver told them it was. Um, <laughs> and they don't know things like SegWit you know, fixes yeah. transaction malleability and it's... Uh, allows hardware wallets to sign inputs more accurately, and it's a block size increase. But but anyway, uh, huge divergence. The, the point being that <laughs> sure, sure. Um, hardware wallets, um, you want them to verify everything they can. And a screen helps you with some of that, but a lot of it's buried in implementation details. Um, so it doesn't matter how big your screen is, if you don't verify what change address is yours versus an attacker's, um, then you really don't know what's going on. If you don't verify the inputs and the outputs, then you don't know the fee. Um, and so this is where there's just so much devil in the details um, that honestly, no one wallet does perfectly. You know, two wallets is your answer because then you got to trick both of them. So even if one doesn't do it perfectly, the other hopefully won't have that exact same vulnerability. Quick word for a sponsor, check out Manning Publications. They've got a great 40% off offer for my listeners using the code LAVERA with many relevant books and videos for Bitcoiners and software developers. They've got products both in electronic format, ebook or video lectures, as well as physical books. There's Grokking Bitcoin by Kalle Rosenbaum if you haven't already got that. Some other products include Real World Cryptography, Rust in Action, Math for Programmers, Rust in Motion, a four-hour video series by Rust experts Carol Nichols and Jake Golding. Part of being a Bitcoiner is about commitment to continual learning. And one book from the Manning catalog I'm working my way through is Linux in Action. I used to be a Windows maximalist, and now I'm improving my knowledge of Linux so that I can get my hands a little more dirty with Bitcoin and trying out Bitcoin software on Linux. Go to manning.com and don't forget to use my code, Lavera for 40% off. Back to the interview. Let's talk about memnonics and passphrases now. So I think users will have an experience here where when they initialize that wallet, they write down the 24-word seed, maybe they make a passphrase, they might have a pin for the device as well. But then I suppose some of the difficulties that the user might face is if they need to recover that wallet and they don't want to obviously enter their seed onto the internet hot computer because, again, our computer could have malware on it. Can you talk to some of the difficulties there and, you know, what, what does good look like? Yeah. Um, so the really big thing is your mnemonic is, is your Bitcoin. Uh, really owning Bitcoin is owning a private key that controls at least one UTXO. Uh, but a, a mnemonic enables us to have uh, an HD wallet with a collection of many private keys. And before we had HD wallets, we had key pools. And these were a disaster. Uh, so a key pool is like, hey, I'll just generate 100 addresses with 100 private keys, and I'll back them up, and I'll transact with them. Uh, and as I do more transactions, I'll back up, I'll generate more addresses. 
Well, the problem is if on day one, I, I create 100 addresses and I create a backup and I store it really securely, I, I encrypt it and I put it in a safe deposit box and I give it to my lawyer and my loved ones, um, and then I do 101 transactions, well, now my backup is out of date. Uh, now I need to go back and redo my backup. So um, the, the solution to that was HD wallets, which is excellent. Every wallet should be HD, and thankfully they all are now. Um, the problem with that is how do I remember my extended private key or XPRIV? And it's really long. It's 512 bits. You're not going to remember it. But a mnemonic, 24 words that can be deterministically mapped to your extended private key, that's memorizable. So what we have now that is the core thing that almost every wallet uses is this mnemonic. It's typically 24 words, although you can do shorter. But um, unless you know what you're doing, don't consider that option. Stick with the regular size if, if, you're, if you don't understand what those trade-offs are. Um, and you get these 24 words, and then you can add a passphrase optionally. And what's really cool about this passphrase is that it gives you some non, um, some some uh, plausible deniability. So if somebody holds a gun to your head and says, "Okay, type your password in," and you know, you say, "Okay, one, two, three, four, five, and um, you know, there's there's one Bitcoin in there, and uh, aha, you've got my Bitcoin. Um, but maybe if you typed in six, seven, eight, nine, ten, uh, there's ten Bitcoin there, and uh, you have another password, and maybe another, and another. And this is a very neat feature. The implementation of it is is clever. Um, I do think it's a little too James Bond, uh, the, the classic um, uh, story behind these types of attacks is that somebody beats you with a $5 wrench until you talk. And so if you have a, a scheme where uh, it involves you uh, holding out uh, that attack, good luck. <laughs> I, I forget which famous boxer it was that said, uh, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. Uh, Mike Tyson, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, so that's a neat thing. You, you the passphrase. The passphrase is really valuable uh, again to protect you against bad uh, hardware or software. So imagine, for example, that your secure element, which um, in some of these instances might be guarded behind a pin, was storing your passphrase. Um, that's one mechanism. The other mechanism is that you don't have a secure element like the Trezor, and the whole idea is that you don't want to store the passphrase. So if an attacker gets physical access to your treasure, they need to type in your passphrase. That's very neat. Um, so, so that's one way to do it. Um, and it sort of makes it so that you can have this thing laying around and you don't have to type in your 24 words all the time. But still, if somebody got it, they need to type in a passphrase. Uh, so I do highly recommend passphrases for their, um, their added security there, making it something you have, your treasure, and something you know. Um, but I, I don't, I think that, uh, that a deniability feature is, is probably more James Bond than it is useful. <laughs> you should probably have one passphrase that you remember instead of like 10 different ones that you have with your, you know, covert identity. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably just going to forget one. <laughs> right. And that's also, in reality, that's the other thing as well, because we, it's similar to that security usability trade off, the more separate passphrases you set up the more now you've got to keep that backed up somewhere you've got to have your family who know that and then they've got to know both your decoy one and your real one yeah and you might have multiple setups you know it's it, it all the complexity just massively uh amplifies and, and as the saying goes complexity is the enemy of security so i i was very reluctant to come to supporting multi-sig because it adds some complexity and i i don't like that you know if you're if you've got an application that uh stores trivial amounts of Bitcoin, you might say like, hey, I just don't care if 0.01% of the time I lose my money on it. 
um, because it's doing lots of transactions and that's fine. Um, the reality is Bitcoin is more more typically used to store value. And so it's a significant value that you care about and that that's probably not your use case. And if it were, you might be more likely to be using Lightning. Um, so probably for secure cold storage, you do want multi-sig. The other thing that historically was a negative with multi-sig was that uh, you have two signatures. And so that uh, severe uh, that large that massively increased the size and bytes of your transaction, and miners charge a fee per byte. So your transaction fees were higher with multisig, which was an unfortunate penalty um, of the reality of, of the system. With Segwit, another change we got is there's the witness discount. So the witness or signature data is discounted in the miner's calculation of uh, whether or not to include your transaction, and the reason for that. Um, maybe is outside the scope of this, um, but but has to do with uh, the incentives for running a full node. Um, yeah. And so that's a really cool thing. So now you can take advantage of this multi-sig without paying higher fees for it if you use a SegWit-enabled wallet. So yeah. All right. that's pretty cool. So yeah, so we've spoken a little bit to this idea of memnonics and passphrases. I suppose another thing, another common thing that a user might want to do is say, test their backup. Yes. Right. Or they might want to say, pretend I've lost my trezor, I've lost my cold card, can I recover using my 24-word seed and my passphrase? But the difficulty is I don't want to necessarily put that in on my warm, you know, my computer because it might have malware, it might steal my my my, uh, my 24-word seed. Do you have any recommendations or things to think about there? So the, I would say bef- before you do any real transactions, do testnet on your hardware wallet and uh, do just a dry run where you say, hey, like this could totally be malware infected. And if somebody gets my free testnet coins, um, good for them. <laughs> I'll know that my system's insecure and it didn't even cost me anything. Um, and so you can do a dry run where you don't have to worry about this stuff. Because when it's real money, each thing you do, you're like double and tri- triple checking. Like, did I do this right? Is this the right step? Why is it asking me for this? What does this wording mean? But when you're just doing it on testnet, with, with coins that literally have no value. You can go really fast. You can try it four times. You can try it different ways. Hey, what happens if I type in a different passphrase? Is there a notification here? Why is it saying that? Let's try multisig now. Just try, try, try stuff on testnet. There's no cost to it at all. Um, and it, with most of your devices, if you don't have a secure element, it's very easy to just like wipe a Trezor. So create a mnemonic, write it down dangerously and securely, store it on your iPhone or Android, you know, in the cloud if you want because it's just going to be used for holding testnet coins. Um, wipe the device, send yourself some coins, see if you can get back onto the device, um, you know, change the passphrase, see what happens, do it over and over again, try multisig, uh, just experiment on testnet. Um, and, and I think this is a really unfortunate that testnet support is, is so minimal um, because it's such a valuable resource. Um, you know, part of the argument with Bitcoin fees going up was that um, it's really bad for Bitcoin's usage because historically people just used Bitcoin on mainnet and they didn't care at all about the fees, so they they used it for stuff that you know didn't need censorship resistance because it was just easy and available. And then um, they had some Bitcoin left over um, because that was really really simple, and they would they got comfortable with it that way. You know, <laughs> the, the classic story is like they bought drugs on Silk Road and they had some change and they're like, oh, this is neat. How does this work? I've already done some transactions. Well, the reality is you can get that same experience of doing transactions, seeing how it works, playing with it, breaking it all on testnet. And then when you go on mainnet, you don't need to do a lot of transactions and worry about fees. You just did 20 free transactions on testnet 
Now you only need to do one on mainnet. So play with testnet. That's really, really your best friend. Okay, let's move on now to this idea of are we querying or polling against a third-party service? So common examples, let's say I just use the standard Trezor. Well, now Trezor knows my XPub, right? Or if I use the standard Ledger interface, again, same sort of thing. Ledger knows my balances, etc. So typically the two main ideas that I know of here are using Electrum Personal Server or something similar like Electrum X or Electras, which is I think a Rust version. And then there's Bitcoin Core with Hardware Wallet Interface. Do you want to just touch on some of those and what are the benefits there? Yeah. Um, so the uh, there's... There's a privacy element from your personal privacy, and then there's the security element that is, um, first of all, you've, you've said like, hey, this IP address has a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> so you just, just painted a target on your back that you may not have wanted. Um, and um, also, there's a technical detail that is, if a wallet um, is sending home the extended public key or XPUB, uh, not only can that be used to generate all of your addresses, so very bad for privacy, um, but also there's a known, um, I don't want to say it's a hack because it's a, it's a by design thing from the beginning, but if I have your extended public key and I have any of your child private keys, then I can derive all of your child private keys for that extended public key. So, um, that's not really that scary because like, why should a third party ever have one of your child private keys? Uh, but you could imagine a scenario where somebody says like, uh, hey, you're having some issue with your hardware wallet. Like, help me diagnose it. Go into your hardware wallet, advanced settings, and pull out a spent um, private key. Don't worry, it's already spent funds. It's it's not going to be used for anything. Um, or derive me a new one and and just give it to me. And that would be enough. And so, um, you know, one of the scary parts of these services is that you're querying a hardware wallet um, with your extended public key. I would assume they keep that information. Maybe their business model is to sell it to Chainalysis. Um, there could be people in the middle intercepting that information. Um, so your extended public key could be out there. And so now if a child private key were to leak, which again, really, really shouldn't happen, but were it to happen, um, now all of your funds would be at risk. So there is both a privacy and security reason why you don't want to query a third-party service. Um, and so you mentioned that the two are Bitcoin Core and Electrum Personal Server, and that's um, pretty much true. Or sorry, there's Electrum and Bitcoin Core. Um, Electrum, by default, um, the, the two biggest operators that we are aware of, of Electrum servers, are um, Chainalysis, at least um, rogue employees have said that. And uh, it would be crazy if they weren't running Electrum servers, because they'd be able to de-anonymize massive amounts of Bitcoin traffic for almost no money. Um, so if they're not doing that, they're really bad at their job. Um, and uh, <laughs> we assume Bread Wallet. Uh, Bread Wallet is uh, built uh, as an SPV client and uh, you at least used to run a lot of um, servers for that reason. Um, so you don't have to sign up and create an account, but the system always works because somebody's running them. And uh, that's really scary. You're just handing off your private info to somebody in the cloud. and You don't even know who they are. Um, now, you can run an Electrum server yourself. And you can run it for the good of mankind, or you can run it um, just for yourself that you connect to privately. But that is a pain. You have to run a whole Bitcoin Core node. You have to run Electrum on top of that to index all the addresses. And um, you know you have to do things like set up SSL certificates and stuff. You can do it in Docker now, makes it a lot easier. So if you know what Docker is, then you probably can imagine that that would be a lot simpler. 
but um, it's a lot. So uh, that's one way to do it. And it is the best UI right now for multi-hardware wallet multi-sig. You can use Electrum. You can use it on your malware-infected hot machine, and that's okay. Um, and you can run your Bitcoin core node or not, uh, which obviously has negatives if you don't. And you can do multi-hardware wallet multi-sig today. The other option is Bitcoin Core. And there's this thing called HWI, which is Hardware Wallet Integration. Um, and that's a really cool project. Uh, you've had uh, some guests on the show for that in the past. And shows, yeah. um, what, I, what I really like about that is that you can get the benefits of Bitcoin Core, um, which is validating consensus rules, knowing that the Bitcoin you're sent is real, uh, generating transactions in the best possible way. You know, you're doing it in the reference implementation. So things like, um, you know, uh, fee priority, uh, RBF or bump fee, um, how to randomize your change addresses, how to do coin control. You can get all of those best practice things of Bitcoin Core, but you don't have to rely on it for the security of your keys because that's really a, a separate thing. You know, then you're securing that whole machine and is a much more complicated task. So that's really, really cool. Um, right now, it's, um, it's still, I would say, for like hackers and tinkerers. It's not, not there for mainstream adoption yet. Um, I'm hoping that BIP-174 is really going to change this because BIP-174 gave us a standard for communication. And so that could be built on top of Bitcoin Core or anything. And every hardware wallet should adopt BIP-174. So I'm hoping that the way this reaches the masses is actually through BIP-174, even though there's nothing groundbreaking in BIP-174. It's just a standard way that we communicate between these devices. But now every hardware wallet should follow the standard instead of creating their own. And any that doesn't follow the standard, I think at some point we'll have to say, like, hey, this isn't compatible with Bitcoin. This is just a shitcoin-only wallet. And you should have a Bitcoin wallet for your Bitcoin, and you can use this for shitcoins. And um, <laughs> I look forward to that day because I think they'll all update real fast. It's not that hard. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's great. And um, as part of this series, I will uh, also get uh, Andrew Chow on to talk about some of his work with HWI as well. So uh, let's move on to the next one. So I think we, we've sort of touched on some of this a little bit earlier as well. But this idea of, you know, trustless and not signing something that the user hasn't verified. So I think we were talking a little bit about that around the difficulties of that uh, in certain cases where, let's say, the screen is not big enough. Um, and also around confirming the change address uh, availability or uh, I guess my understanding there is in some sense what that is is the hardware wallet has this master seed, the XPrive, right? And it, from that, it can generate the private keys for these different addresses. And if you are sending, if you're generating the transaction to send Bitcoins, you want to make sure that the change is coming back and you it's an address in your control with a private key where you have that private key. Is that a correct way to summarize it? Yeah. And this would be like a really clever attack because I go to spend Bitcoin and I want to send, um, you know, 0.1 Bitcoin to you. And then I send the change back to myself. So my hot machine generates a transaction. Now, remember, my hot, my hot machine is malware infected and it sends 0.1 to you and the change back to me. Only the change isn't going back to me. The change is going to my attacker. <laughs> and so I think, I look on the screen and I say, well, it's only 0.1 Bitcoin. You know, this looks correct. I'm, I'm not, my stash is not ruined. Uh, I click confirm. And then I find that actually all the change went to my attacker. 
And that's really something that should not happen in any good hardware wallet implementation. And um, that I, I'm, I think all of them do check that except for Ledger. Ledger just says verify the outputs yourself, which is totally nutty. Um, it really makes no sense. And I don't, I, I don't know what they're thinking. I, I think part of their thing is that uh, there is the concern of this M of N. So uh, this is, a, this is a, a step back, more complicated thing. Imagine that it's a two of two. And uh, my wallet says that I'm one of the two. But the other one of the two is actually my attacker, and they can ransom my funds that way. Or let's say it's two of three, and I'm one of the two, but the other two are my attacker. And so they're able to just steal all the funds. Ledger just kind of says like, hey, that's complicated. We're just not going to deal with it. And so for that reason, they push the end user to verify the inputs and the outputs, as opposed to uh, using the, the tools that we have to verify the transaction. It's very odd. I would strongly recommend until they upgrade their software, don't use Ledger for a multi-sig transaction, which really means just don't use Ledger, um, which is really silly because if they just supported that, it would be totally, it wouldn't be necessarily great, but it would be a, a, a comparable product. Yeah, sure. Well, as part of this series, I'm actually going to be interviewing uh, some of the Ledger guys as well. So I will uh, try and touch on that in the interview for that. Yep, so we understood there. Let's talk about... Um, oh, and I don't mean it to right, crap guess, on them. I want yeah. them to make a better product, and I want to make them make the other guys make even better products. Um, you know, the oh, original yeah, version sure. same, of the Ledger, same. the HW1, didn't have a screen. <laughs> Can you imagine a hardware wallet without a screen? <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You just literally, yeah. your, your malware-infected hot machine says, do you want to send your Bitcoin to this address? And you click a you click the button on your on your device with no screen, and you hope that it does what your malware infected computer told it to do, and that that was the right thing. <laughs> so I right. mean, now we have yeah. screens. It's totally different. <laughs> We're living in the future now. We've got screens on our hardware wallets. So uh, yeah. All right. Um, are there any other things around hardware wallets? Uh, I think we've sort of touched on a few other ones. Oh, I, around this question of open source hardware. What are, what are your thoughts there? Because there are slightly different philosophies there amongst some of the uh, well-known hardware wallets, right? So Trezor is well-known for being an open-source hardware. Uh, Coldcard are very much about being an open-source hardware, although Ledger are known for having a closed-source secure element. Mm-hmm. What are you, what's your view there? Uh, yeah, so the Holy Grail would be an open-source secure element. That's, that's what we all want. Um, it doesn't yet fully exist because they're just... The, the best reason I've heard is that it costs somewhere on the order of 10 to $20 million, and nobody has spent 10 to $20 million to open source a secure element. And I imagine if there was one, then everyone would pile on. Um, and so maybe in the future, we'll look back and say, oh my God, can you believe that we used Bitcoin when there wasn't open source secure elements? So you generally have either open source software running without a secure element on an off-the-shelf microcontroller unit. Um, or you have a secure element that really is supposed to be secure, and that that's something um, that has some benefits because uh, well, we'll talk about what it does in a second. Um, but we can't verify that it's really running that, or or even see the code of how that thing works. So that's sort of the trade-off. And again, my answer to this question is: uh, if you want to, if you're ideological about this in either direction, then by all means, um, go with it. But you could just get one of each and require a signature from each. And now your attacker has to break both. And that sounds pretty good to me. Um, 
I get a little afraid with secure elements that are not open source because anything that's not open source is just um, really, really juicy target for attack. Because you can say it's doing one thing and then it turns out it's doing another thing. So to me, that sounds trusting. Um, but again, I would happily use it as part of my multisig. So um, that's really the magic of multisig is that uh, it's only additive. You can have a good wallet and a bad wallet, and you're better off than just having a good wallet. And you might not know which is the good one and the bad one. Next year, we might find a vulnerability in one of these major hardware wallets, and something that we thought was great was not so great, and something that we thought was bad was actually better. So um, being able to use multiple is is really the future. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. Uh, how about firmware and software and the review of that code as well? Because I think that's another common consideration is that there's this idea of eyes on the code and that if you've got more eyes on the code, then that's theoretically a little bit better because there's more chance of some kind of bug or malware being picked up. Yeah. I mean, one of the cool things about Bitcoin in general is it's the world's largest bug bounty program. If, if there were malware in Bitcoin, there's a real incentive for somebody to exploit it. Or not malware is probably the wrong term. If there were a, a, a bug, um, you know, for the glory, for the money, uh, it is the world's best target. In fact, the fact that that doesn't happen tells us that uh, it's probably running pretty well. It should give us peace of, more peace of mind every year of Bitcoin's existence. We should say this is even harder to hack. Um, so in general, in a software wallet, we, we, you know, the more people that use it, the more eyeballs are on it, uh, the more businesses build their infrastructure on top of it, we could say, hey, that's probably um, safer. You know, if somebody releases a new hardware wallet tomorrow and we've never heard of it, uh, I would be really skeptical to store my life savings on that. But this is where multisig changes the game. The additive power of a second signature or even a third, um, but really I think a second is, is gets you most of the way there, um, is so massive that I would happily take a lousy second signature over my single key signature. Um, and I hope that's the biggest message that your listeners will take home. Um, and so if you have a wallet that doesn't play nicely with other wallets, a security product that doesn't uh, accept easy improvements in security. To me, that's that's really lousy product. And I'm hoping that with BIP74, everyone just adopts this. And we look back in a year and we think, wow, that was insane that Bitcoin was once so, so dangerous. Um, and that actually brings me to something that uh, I, I wanted to talk about in the beginning. Um, and I, I didn't get to, uh, th there's a reason why this is so important. Um, it's easy to just nerd out on all the possible ways that there could be compromises or attacks or Bitcoin could be lost. Um, but what usually happens when we have conversations like this is people say, oh, this sounds really hard. I'm just going to use Coinbase. Um, and, and that's terrible. The, the worst thing you should do is give up your Bitcoin to somebody else. Because at that point, uh, you don't have Bitcoin anymore. You have Bitcoin IOUs. And Mt. Gox users um, found this out a very hard lesson. Uh, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. It's, it's the most important lesson in Bitcoin. And it's so easy to get lost. And I don't know how to run my own full node. I don't understand this command line stuff. I don't understand this part. I don't understand that part. Um, but if we get to a world where no one actually owns Bitcoin, they just have Bitcoin IOUs, and there's weirdos like me who want to manage their own private keys, um, we're really in for trouble in three major ways. Um, the big one is custodial losses. Uh, it, it's it's just going to keep happening. And one of the things that's uh, strange about this is that super large holders counterintuitively have a diseconomy of scale when it comes to security. 
So for your first 10 to $100 million US worth of cryptocurrency, you have pretty strong incentives to store it well. You know, you if it's going to cost you $10,000 a year in hardware costs, if you have to hire fancy consultants or software engineers, but you're guarding $100 million, you're, you're going to be happy to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to make sure you're doing everything right to store it. But if you're holding $5 billion, um, which we've we don't know the exact amounts that some of these large trusted custodians are holding, but during the the highs of the bull market of 2018, those were numbers that were regularly thrown around for some of the big guys. You are such a target for attack. Because if someone's able to steal just 1% of your $5 billion supply, that's still $500 million. Uh, I'm sorry, that's still uh, $50 Five, yeah. million. Dollars. Yeah. So you're going to be facing attacks at every single corner. Your employees are going to be getting... Uh, ideas. If if they're not already, they're going to be getting bribe offers. Um, in fact, one of the crazy things about exchanges is that they try to um, to uh, trick their own employees, see if they'll bite. So they both fish uh. their employees and they bribe and they try to bribe, bribe their employees, which is you know shows how on it they are, and that that's good that they're doing that. But the target is just so so big, and that's not the ultimate goal. I mean, if we look at gold originally, part of the reason that gold was co opted. Um, was that you had these trusted third parties storing your gold. And then that really changed the whole nature. I mean, going back to the Roman Empire, you could debase the gold. Um, so you could print coins that weren't fully backed by gold and go fractional. Um, but you also get this like account freezing and reporting that we see in, in a Coinbase or PayPal or, or even your bank. And you know we don't want Bitcoin turning into that. So owning your own private keys is really huge. And then the last reason why controlling your own private keys is so important is the governance attacks. So we saw this in SegWit2x, where we had major players saying, um, hey, we represent all of these holders of Bitcoin, and we decide what their Bitcoin is, and we're going to support a new coin, and we're going to sell all their Bitcoin for SegWit2x. And they were able to say that because they did represent a substantial ownership of Bitcoin. Um, and that's a really scary thing. Imagine in the future we have an ETF, and that ETF controls double-digit percentage of the Bitcoin supply. And they say, okay, we want to change Bitcoin to, we don't like the 21 million supply. We don't think it's good for the mining economy. Uh, we're going to change it, and we're going to sell all of our uh, Bitcoin for the new mining coin, and a, what a world of pandemonium that will create. Now, maybe Bitcoin does fine, because... Um, the private key holders and the full node operators say, well, that's not my Bitcoin, so I'm not going to transact on that. And good luck. You know, um, I'll, I'll buy your, your Bitcoin off you if you're selling. And maybe we weather that storm just fine. But the lower the percentage of the economy that they are and the higher the percentage of the economy that we are, the, the less significant they are. Um, so this is not just an academic thing. And this is not just for your own security, although uh, that's why I think you'll probably heed the advice um, this really is good for the ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, no, that's a, a very well articulated. I couldn't have, uh, I think it's really well thought out there. Ultimately, it does have to be enough people out there holding their own keys, running their own node. And I think the other point you're trying to make there is 
even if you're not running your own node, it's better that you at least hold your own keys. So, uh, you know, that's and that's often the way I've thought of it as well. It's sort of like rule one of Bitcoin, as Andrea says, not your keys, not your coins. Rule two is not your node, not your rules, right? And so I think the way we teach this, and obviously many of my listeners probably are more intermediate or advanced themselves anyway, but that's kind of, you've got to baby step people through, right? You can't just sort of take them straight from leaving their stuff on the exchange to now fully running your own node. You've got to say, okay, What's one step further? Okay, take it onto a one hardware wallet. Okay, now you've got one hardware wallet. Let's try to get you to a multi-signature, you know, hardware wallet set up. Okay, and now let's get you running a node. You know, that's, that's, I guess that's the progression that we want to try to get people to come down that pathway. That's exactly the path. And the beauty is they'll do it themselves because I get calls at each step of this on the way. I mean, the typical path I'm used to getting is someone's on um, the order page on a Coinbase or, or now a Square Cash, and they'll say, hey, I'm going to put my account and routing or my debit card and PIN number into this site. Is this a scam? <laughs> and I say, well, you know, depends how you define that, but probably you're probably going to get your Bitcoin. It's probably going to be okay. And then they say, hey, I've got like, you know, $10,000 on this site. Like, it seems kind of sketchy. Should I, should I store it myself? And I'm like, absolutely. Yeah, you should, you know, here's, here's all these different ways you can do it. Um, and then they run a hardware wallet and they say like, hey, this hardware wallet, it, uh, you know, maybe Bitcoin's price has gone up in this time. And they say, this hardware wallet knows about all my transactions. And I say, yeah, it does. It's, it's not ideal. You know, you should probably uh, run it with your own full node. Um, and now we're also getting, and you should have a second signature. And so this just, people just do this naturally because they're not idiots. Um, so that part's neat. We don't have to get them to do everything to, to be better than doing nothing. <laughs> well, no, I mean, agreed with you, but it may be actually that the ones, it's a selection bias. The proactive ones are the ones who do come and ask you, and the non-proactive ones are the ones who are just leaving it on the yeah, exchange. Yeah, maybe right? I'm, I'm just telling you about the people I hear <laughs> right? from, and behind the scenes, uh, Coinbase is rumored right? to be storing just a, an obscene amount of cryptocurrency. It's a challenging problem, but I guess it's all about how do you make it easy for people and how do you give them the info that they need? And actually, you're, you're, you've got a really great website now with this uh, Bitcoin hardware wallet, github.io. I'll put the link in the show notes, obviously. Uh, but Michael, just tell us a little bit about what you're, what you're trying to achieve here. Yeah, it's, it's kind of silly. It's just like uh, something I'm super passionate about. I've wanted a good hardware wallet for so many years and I can't believe we're 10 years in and I, I still think everything's like pretty mediocre. Um, I, I personally, if I were going to have to recommend one, I would say get the cold card. Um, they're, they're the least bad. Um, but it's not something that, you know, your mom would really say, Hey, this worked out great for me. Uh, you have to be a little tech savvy <laughs> to use it. And I don't love the SD card situation. Um, but it's, pr it works. Um, and, um, and I discovered it through this through this process of, um, you know, I played with it before, but I hadn't gone into details. And basically, I started a tweet storm about how I was frustrated with hardware wallets not having these these key things that you need in a security product, multi-sig support, an air gap, the ability for users to uh, input stuff and, and for it to run trustlessly and verify what's happening, and some privacy mechanism where you could fetch your own uh, Bitcoin data from your own full node. And that those were not really crazy requests in a device that only exists for that purpose. Um, and everyone chimed in, well, well, you you didn't talk about my wallet. My wallet is actually good. Um, and I was like, well, it's more nuanced. I mean, your wallet has some good things, but your wallet has some really gaping bad things. And so I just started responding it to, to, to all those things. 
And all the info is in tweet storms and subtweet storms and responses, but it's very hard for it to be organized. So I created this um, just silly comparison site. It's bitcoin-hardware-wallet.github.io. I should probably buy a domain name for it. Um, and uh, it gives star ratings for each of those criteria to each of the main hardware wallets. So multi-sig support, air gap, user import, user input, privacy, and trustlessness are all rated for um, all the wallets that like you could even potentially really use, like KeepKey, Ledger, Trezor, and ColdCard. Um, now, there are other hardware wallets. You know, you, you'll get like requests from people saying, hey, you didn't mention John McAfee's unhackable Android phone wallet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's just it would rate so low. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I listed why some are excluded. Um, and, and there are, it is amazing uh, to see what people are focusing on. Like there's this not very well heard of um, wallet called Kobo Vault that has a beautiful QR code. Um, but it's really made as a shitcoin wallet, and it doesn't seem to have much Bitcoin support. And they're just not compatible with multi-sig with other hardware wallets. Like it's not even difficult; they just don't do it. Um, but if they did, I wouldn't mind their shitcoining. I, I would. It would be only additive, and they have a beautiful QR code. It's really expensive. It's like a five hundred dollar wallet, but um, it seems great. Well, I, I don't want to be publicly on record saying it seems great. The QR code and screen are awesome, and nobody's doing that right yeah. now. Um, and so it's it's really weird to look at all the different products that are out there. People have these ones that are like, uh, you know, their killer feature is that they're the size of a credit card. I'm talking about the Cool Wallet S. Um, and you're like, yeah, but I, I just care about like security. Like I, <laughs> I don't care about its form factor that it looks like a credit card. Um, yep. So they're all laid out in terms of um, their, their ratings on each of those things. Detail, if you mouse over, you can see why, and some Q&A about this stuff that breaks down a lot of what we're talking about. Um, and my goal for this is I just want people to build better hardware wallets. Um, I want to make those ratings much harder to get. Um, I want it to be standard that you cannot be a hardware wallet that doesn't support multi-sig through Bitcoin Core with your competitors. That seems insane to me. Uh, you've got to have a decent air gap, and that should be like an SD card at the minimum, which right now only one of them supports. Um, you've got to have a way for your users to input their seed and mnemonic. Uh, you know, the keep key has one button. <laughs> like, that's just, that's crazy. Um, and the ledger has two that are very difficult to use. If you're actually entering something and you're, you're going to go nuts, and so you're not going to enter it, and then you're going to forget what it is. Um, so that should be a really standard thing, you know, from a privacy perspective, they should all just connect to Bitcoin core, um, via BIP 174, that there's no reason, uh, to make a hardware wallet that isn't directly compatible with Bitcoin. Now, to be fair, BIP 174 is only depending on how you count a yearish old, we got to give these things time. But the second there's two of them on board, I'm going to shame everybody else and their scores are all going to go down. Um, and I know of two new hardware wallets that are in the works that are supporting BIP 174 natively at launch. So, you know, they say they're a couple months away. Who knows? Hardware's really hard. Maybe they're longer, but I can't wait for that to happen. Um, I, I think in a year, we're going to look back and we're just going to say, oh, we had it rough for so long and now it's good. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and I like, I particularly like how you can mouse over, you mentioned it there, you can mouse over the stars and you've got a bit of an explanation about why. So I think for a newbie who's trying to think, okay, what are these hardware wallets? 
why did it get rated that way? That's an important factor. And also, look, I think it is important to have some level of curation, right? Like I'm sure there's probably there's probably 50, there's probably dozens of hardware wallets, right? But ultimately, you've just got to put the ones that are well known and that people are at least somewhat familiar with. Okay, so I guess are there any other points that you know you wanted to touch on with hardware wallets? I mean, I mean, there's a lot we can go into. Uh, it might be nice to just at least touch on a few of these other points. Oh, there, there is the uh, that chosen nonce attack. I thought it might be interesting just to yeah. talk about that oh, as well. If any wallet implements a defense for a chosen nonce attack, it becomes the, if you're doing single key signature, it becomes the must-have hardware wallet. So um, we've talked about randomness and hardware number generators a bit. And one of the, um, it's just a reality of ECDSA um, that uh, ECDSA is the elliptical curve digital signature algor- algorithm. That's what Bitcoin uses. You may have heard of RSA. Um, that is a different asymmetric cryptography algorithm that it stands for the initials of the three mathematicians, Rivesh, Shamir, and Adelson. Um, and that's what's used like when you browse the internet and you have that lock that you're using RSA on an HTTPS website or SSL's um, website. Um, so with ECDSA, we have this issue of, um, randomness in our signatures, um, that we see popping up, uh, time and time again. And in a chosen nunce attack, um, the attacker somehow chooses the nunce. That's the number used only once, um, in cryptography. And that's, that's a source of randomness. The attacker chooses that randomness. And from that, they can, uh, from your signature, they can reverse engineer your private key effortlessly. And that's terrifying. And right now, we just don't have a way to prove that your hardware wallet isn't using an attacker's nonce. And there are published attacks of this that are very, very simple and straightforward. Uh, actually, one by a former guest of yours, Stepan Snigarev, um, who's a quantum physicist and a very sharp guy. And um, now, the, the one thing I should say about this attack is that I have to see your signature and I have to have chosen your nuts. So how am I seeing your signature? It's probably that you broadcast it on the Bitcoin network, in which case now I'm in a race to double spend you. So in that sense, it could be a weak attack. But if I've malware infected your host machine and it's communicating with your hardware wallet, then maybe you just send me home um, the signature, not the private key, but from that I'm easily able to... um, reverse your private key from your signature because I've chosen your nuts and compromised your hardware yeah. wallet. So just to clarify then. <laughs> this uh, is complicated. The this works, yeah, there's a lot here. Sorry. Um, but just to clarify then, it, what the hacker in this case is able to reverse out, are they reversing out an individual private key for one address or are they reversing out the XPrive, like the master private key? In this case, they're reversing out an individual private key, but assuming they're able to do this, um, they may be able to reverse your, um, they may have a copy of your extended public key. And then from that, with your child private key, they could get calculate everything. Um, so yeah, the, the um, severity of this tack, um, it, they could they there's different ways they could pull it off so in one situation uh, you broadcast a transaction they see it on the network they know your nuns they know your private key and they try to double spend it um they try to um broadcast a competing transaction with a higher fee um but they're already starting from a behind position um there's a question of whether or not you used rbf in your original transaction that one is not the best attack 
but it's really profitable. Like <laughs> if you found a vulnerability in the nonce uh, that was used in the signature of a specific hardware wallet, then you just go for it. Um, but once it was known that it was out there, then people would say, hey, don't use you know this hardware wallet anymore. You got to upgrade or change. So you'd probably have a limited window to like try to get these in-flight transactions. But if you also knew their XPUB, then you could, from that child private key, generate all their other child private keys, um, then perhaps you could steal some of their funds that they had sitting around, and that would be far worse. So this is a complicated one. It's a nuanced one. There are some defenses for a chosen nonce attack of various um, UX and uh, computational difficulty. So um, I expect we'll see a defense for that in the future. But for now, the best defense is multi-hardware wallet, multi-sig. Because if you know everything about one hardware wallet um, that you could possibly know, um, and you, you've completely pwned it, but there's two signatures required, that's still okay. And that's the amazing one. Like We could go into details of any of these attacks that are all uh, scary and obscure and uh, maybe would affect you or maybe wouldn't. Um, but if you just have two hardware wallets um, and require two signatures, and they're from two different manufacturers you are massively insulated. Yeah, right. Uh, and also this question of, is a secure element required? Or is it actually, can it, is it just simply not as important as you, as you mentioned of as just having multi-sig support? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even consider, um, uh, to me, multi-sig is an absolute must. If a, if a hardware wallet is not designed to do multi-sig, then it's not a security product. And so I don't care what other security features it has. They're missing out on the lowest hanging fruit. It, supporting multisig is not an expensive thing. It's not a complicated thing. It's somebody saying our business model is not to make a security product. Our business model is to lock you into our platform, uh, probably because we make the most money um, selling shitcoin trading, because we support <laughs> thousands of altcoins and you can trade them on our platform. We've got a built-in integration, perhaps, with something like a Shapeshift. Uh, we've got partnerships for you to buy Bitcoin through us uh, and, and other coins. And um, that's not a bad thing. You know, if, if you want to do that, that's that's your business. I, I, that's your right. Um, it's not my interest, but um, that's totally fine. The problem is you're just not selling a security product anymore. And I only want a security product. So one of the things that I actually like about the gold card is that they don't support altcoins um, because complexity is the enemy of security. And the more code your hardware wallet runs, the more things it's doing, the more opportunities there are for some sort of bug or vulnerability. So the simpler you keep it, the better. That's why I led with um, my, open source hard, my open source command line wallet is the fewest lines of code of any Bitcoin wallet. I think that's still true. It was, it was the fewest lines of code by a ton when it was released. I don't think there's one that's near it. Um, and I, I think that's really cool. It shows you exactly how it works. You can learn about um, what it's doing. You can see if something is off more simply. Doesn't mean that I, that it's you know guaranteed to be secure. But um, I think that's a real feature. So I, I do like that about Cold Card. Um, but Trezor supports lots of altcoins, and and I'm fine with using them as well. Um, but it, it, multi-sig really is the most important thing. So secure element, um, if there was an open source one, I'd be all about it. There's not an open source one, so I think it's neat, but I don't really feel strongly either way. Use both. Right, yeah. Let's talk about an aim now for some listeners who are trying to up their game in terms of security. And let's say they wanted to 
you know, try and run, say, Bitcoin Core with hardware wallet interface back at home and have, say, some multi-signature hardware wallets set up and they've distributed them. Is that, is that, um, is that kind of a, a good aim for them? What, what, what's your thoughts there? I think right now for the security usability trade-off, if you want to do multi-hardware wallet, multi-sig, you should use Electrum. And um, I don't love that because the Electrum has the difficulty or the problems that about privacy and enforcing consensus rules, but you can run your own Electrum server in addition. So um, if you switch to the Electrum multi-hardware wallet, multi-sig, you'll be better off than the hardware wallet's standard app that they give you where you have no privacy at all and you know they're taking all your info and um, it seems very dangerously connected to your hot machine. If you switch to Electrum, Electrum supports an air cap very nicely. So you can switch to an air gap system if you want. You don't necessarily need to with multi-hardware, multi-sig, but you can if you're worried about it. I know uh, many large holders, you know, people that are doing eight-figure transactions on Electrum air gaps, um, and that's great that they can do that. So um, I would recommend doing Electrum for now. Um, but soon, I hope to be recommending um, PSBT BIP-174 via your own Bitcoin Core node, and I see some really cool stuff in the works for that. Uh, and that's a way better way to run Bitcoin Core because you don't have to be paranoid about, did I get, um, is this the real Bitcoin Core that I'm running? Uh, is there some vulnerability in my operating system? How did I configure my firewall? Like, am I doing all this stuff right? If your keys are on your hardware wallet and you're running Bitcoin Core, your only risk is uh, privacy, um, which is, and that you might be on the wrong consensus rules, um, which are not insignificant risks, but they're totally different than losing your money. So now you can first focus really, really carefully on not losing your money on your hardware wallet. And then you can focus as carefully as you want to on your hot machine about, you know, which operating system do you want to run your Bitcoin core on and what level of verification do you want to do? Um, and that's great. People should be able to opt in to the most levels that they want to, but first and foremost, secure their coins. Losses are just so, so bad for the ecosystem as a whole. Uh, even though as a holder, I I do get a little pleasure out of losses, meaning there's less Bitcoins in the world. Um, but that's not inviting for new people to come in to know that they could just lose everything, even if their investment does well. Right. Yeah. So it's more about uh, making it easy for people to secure their Bitcoins and then know that they've got at least, you know, not 100% security, but at least some reasonable for a, no for a normal person, right? Not like some billionaire with massive resources kind of person. And one of the um, um, ways that we can think about this is in websites, they do uptime with service level agreements or SLAs. And so um, you want to, the, the expression is chasing nines. You know, it's very easy to make something that's, that's up 99% of the time. And it's pretty doable to do 99.9%. And 99.99% uptime, uh, that you can achieve, but like you're going to have to, uh, you, you, that doesn't just happen. You have to do some work. But if you want five nines, oh, you've got to be good. And if you want six, that's like you only get a couple seconds of downtime. <laughs> so um, you can kind of think of it with Bitcoin in the same way, only it's the opposite. It's like, um, you know, I, I'm, what are the odds I'm going to lose my money? And, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm comfortable with a 0.1% chance. You know, maybe it's an amount of money where I say, hey, I'm going to do this much work and there's a 0.1% chance. But maybe I want it to be 0.01 or 0.001 or 0.0001. But then you're really going to have to do each extra step. Um, and so from a loss perspective, Bitcoin Core is the last thing you need to worry about. It would be great if everyone ran their own uh, Bitcoin Core node. Um, but from the perspective of losing your Bitcoins, 
you want to focus on the hardware wallet side first, and then the Bitcoin core side second. Um, so uh, and I wish that my answer was that we're there and that you can just run Bitcoin core on a Raspberry Pi really, really easily and do multi-hardware wallet, multi-sig without any command line knowledge. Um, and I think we will be in a year, but we're not there today. Yeah, look, that's great. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I suppose maybe we'll just summarize it then for the listeners. I think probably the two main lessons, I guess, one is multi-signature is additive. So, you know, try and use it. And number two is use testnet so that you can really be more comfortable with the transactions you're doing. Yeah, test everything. Um, those transactions are free. And the one thing that nobody's using uh, or very few people use that I think a lot of people should use is a free thing called Shamir Secret Sharing Scheme. Uh, this is on top of, in addition to your hardware wallet and backup strategy, um, but it's a neat, uh, different thing that is kind of like multi-sig, but is different. Uh, so if, if we have time, we could talk a little bit about Shamir Secret Sharing Scheme. If not, um, save it for another. Oh, yeah, you know what? Let's let's do it. We might as well. Let's cover um, it. So. so Shamir's Secret Sharing Scheme comes from a 1979 paper by Adi Shamir. Again, he's the S in RSA. One of the RSA. Um, so you know, he's one of these like... Uh, crypto OG badasses we have that are surprisingly like still around, like Ralph Merkel's still around, the guy in Merkel Tree. Um, so Adi Shamir published this 1979 paper called How to Split a Secret. It's two pages long. You can read it and you can grok it pretty fast. And uh, the idea is that you can set an M of N threshold to break apart your secret. And your secret could be a Bitcoin private key. It could be a passphrase to your mnemonic. It could be a passphrase to, say, a USB drive that stores all of your secrets. Um, it could be anything you want. And um, you can uh, divide this secret up into these pieces. And if somebody gets um, M of these uh, Shamir shares, they can combine them to get your secret. But if they get M minus one, they get nothing. And so it's strictly superior to any other secret dividing construction where people are like, oh, I'm going to take my password and cut the paper in half. And I'll put half the password at home and half at work. And it's like, well, first of all, if you lost either half, um, you're, you're in trouble. You know, you would rather have two of five than two of two uh, or two of three or two of four. You know, you can set your thresholds however you want. And also, uh, it's not really perfectly secure because if you had one half of it, let's say you had a 15-character passphrase or password, and oh, let's say 16, so the math is easier, and you have eight, you know, eight characters in one place and eight characters in another. Well, if somebody finds just the eight characters, they could brute force the other eight. Whereas with neither of them, they might not be able to brute force the 16, depending, assuming randomness and your key space, you know, your mileage may vary in terms of the numbers you put in. But the idea is it's a, it's a very clever and smart algorithm that people have been using on the periphery of Bitcoin for a long time, but it's not commonplace. And here's why it's so useful. What happens, the question I always ask Bitcoiners, what happens to your Bitcoin if you get hit by a bus? And for most Bitcoiners, it means their Bitcoin dies with them. And that's really sad, especially if you have a family. Um, and it shouldn't be that way. And the the other thing that people do is they leave their Bitcoin laying around unencrypted. So they have it in you know a safe at home or under their mattress or a safe deposit box buried in a treasure map, whatever it is that they do. But if anyone comes across that seed, if there's no passphrase, they can steal your Bitcoin. And you want to have lots of backups because your house could burn down or there could be a flood or you know, that uh, hard drive could fail or that piece of paper could could rot. Um, so you you want uh, some backups, maybe a crypto steal or something like that. Um, but that password, you want to split it. 
And the really smart way to split your password is Shamir's secret sharing scheme. You could give that password out to a number of trusted family and friends. You could set whatever threshold you wanted. So, you know, it could be two of five, it could be 11 of 20. And you hand out these pieces to, to your passphrase. And if you get hit by a bus, assuming all those other people weren't also on the bus, or at least a quorum of them weren't on the bus, they can combine together and get your passphrase. And combined with the physical um, seed that you've kept in your, say, safe deposit box or something like that, um, your Bitcoin could be recovered. And I think that's something we're going to see a lot more adoption of in, in the future because historically Bitcoin has been owned by young men who think they're invincible and will never die. So they haven't worried about it. <laughs> and maybe it hasn't been worth as much. <laughs> but yeah. But my question then is how would you add that into your hardware wallet multi stack, let's yeah. say? Because here's the thing, right? And I don't know, there are different, so for example, Casa go with the seedless approach. Mm-hmm. So for them, when they've got their three of five, it's actually three hardware wallets, one held on your mobile device and one held by Casa as their recovery key with no seed backup. Mm-hmm. Um, but another approach, obviously, as we've talked about today, is this idea of having multi-signature hardware wallets and maybe you would put them in, you know, distributed out, say you wanted to do a roll your own three or five. But then where would the Shamir's secret sharing come into that? Yeah, so one of the things that's tricky in all of this is, first of all, we're remembering complexity is the enemy of security. And also, somebody's got to deal with this, and you're not there to tell them anything. So somebody is opening up a safe deposit box, and they're like, oh, I got this like crypto steal thing. I don't know what that is. And I've got, you know, these other people have told me they have these Shamir shares. And and what is the M of N on the Shamir shares? And what is the M of N on the multi-sig? Um, and unfortunately, right now, this is pretty messy. Um, I, there is a, a Trezor or Satoshi Labs, which is Trezor has a slip, Satoshi Labs improvement pro- proposal for Shamir's secret sharing scheme. Um, and implementing that in a standardized way for splitting a key. Um, I would like to see something that's kind of like WIF, wallet input format for private keys, where there's a serialization and you know what you're looking at. So you scan a WIF, you have a private key, any wallet can Im- Im- import that and it knows what it's working with. But with multi-sig and HD, this gets very complicated. So, you know, if I'm looking at a Shamir share of a seed, um, of, of a mnemonic for, or let's say I'm looking at a Shamir share of an XPRIV, so a seed, for an HD wallet that's two of three. So I'm looking at a, you know, six of 10 Shamir share of a two of three multi-sig seed. Right. <laughs> where yeah. am I in this? What do I need? Do I have all the info? Because the ultimate end goal would be to just have something standardized where you dumped it into uh, you know, something like a Bitcoin core. And it said, oh, I know how to read all this stuff. And here's your money. Um, right now, it gets messy. It really does. And unfortunately, it's a, it's a feature that pushes us towards centralization. Because while Coinbase um, doesn't advertise this, they are legally compelled um, to pass your Bitcoin onto your heirs. I don't think it's going to be an easy process if you have to go through that. But I do know of one case where that's happened and it worked. Um, so that that is neat. Um, but that's not great. We should have better ways to do this. I know of one custody uh, company that's working on this, and they might develop a new standard for this as part of it. So like they would have one of your keys, um, and you would have two. Uh, you would have two other keys, and it's two of three. So it, with a death certificate, they could combine uh, their one key with one remaining key, and all you have to do is make sure your family has access to one remaining key, and maybe you could do that 
um, was something like a Shamir secret sharing scheme where you broke that up into parts and you gave it to a bunch of family members. And then if they conspired to steal your Bitcoin, well, they could only get one of one of two necessary keys um, anyway. So, so you could see a world like that where you give one to a lawyer or one to a custody agent, and then you divide another one amongst your, your family and friends. And it does create a weird thing. You know, like if you buy life insurance, that beneficiary has an incentive to kill you. Um, if you give out Shamir shares to your fortune, your friends have a family, have an incentive to kill you. So just pick people who wouldn't kill you. <laughs> Always good advice. <laughs> and maybe make a high quorum. So a lot of them need to be in on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I think, yeah, it, it is a bit complicated, but I suppose it's just a matter of people sort of going starting on that pathway. So right now, there's a lot of people who are just leaving it on an exchange. So those people can just, you know, take one step further. And that's really uh, where, we're, where we're going at with this uh, podcast. So look, I think that's pretty much all we've got to cover for this. I mean, there's, there's so many little rabbit holes we could go down. And I'll, I'll definitely be getting you back on the show again in future. But uh, just for now, if you could just let the listeners know where they can find you, where they can follow you and keep up with what you're writing. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, tweet and blog occasionally about uh, Bitcoin. Um, and I'm at mflaxman on Twitter. That's probably the easiest way. You can also see my personal website is michaelflaxman.com. That's M-F-L-A-X-M-A-N, mflaxman on Twitter. Awesome. Well, look, thank you very much. This has been really educational. I'm sure my listeners will get a lot out of this one. So thank you. Thank you. Hopefully I've helped them more than confused them. What did you think of that? Are there any tips you're taking on in your own Bitcoin storage? Let me know what you're thinking of the series so far. Note, I will be having some of the hardware wallet companies doing interviews this month as well, as well as other relevant experts. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. You can get the show notes, the podcast transcript, and the links to subscribe on my website, stefanlevera.com. If you want to support the show, share the episode or the series with your friends and help them up their Bitcoin knowledge. Rate and review the podcast. The five-star ratings and comments really help new people find me, and big thanks to the people who gave me reviews already. There's a Patreon page. There's also merchandise at Layer1BTC, so you can get an orange coin good number-go-up shirt there. Any feedback for me, or if you'd want to advertise on the show, DM me on Twitter, at Stefan Levera, or email me, stefanlevera at pm.me. That's it for me. Thanks, and I'll speak to you next time.